following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Well, good morning again, church. It's good to see everybody once again. We're in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 is where we're going to be today. Well, as you're turning there, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. What did you want to be when you grew up? Maybe a teacher or a professional athlete or a singer or a firefighter or a police officer. Well, when I was in middle and high school, I wanted to be a medical doctor. Like, I loved me some shows like ER, right? I saw them cracking open some chests, suturing, yelling stat all the time. I was like, I think I could do that, right? And I probably would have pursued that career path had the Lord not called me to be a pastor. A calling I resisted for a long time because I was like, I could be the real-life George Clooney or something, right? True, I became a doctor of a different kind, but as a friend of mine's daughter likes to often remind us, okay, yeah, you're a doctor, but not the kind that actually helps people, right? But as a kid, man, what I really wanted to be was an astronaut. In the 1980s, there was this movie called Space Camp, where a group of teenagers accidentally got launched into space while they were visiting the Kennedy Space Center. And for years, I tried to talk my mom into letting me go to space camp, convinced that I, too, would accidentally get sent into space somehow. And I'll be real with y'all, if tomorrow one of those crazy billionaires invited me to get on one of their fancy spaceships, I'd do it in a heartbeat. If they ever take a lottery to go to the moon or to Mars, sign me up, all right? But apparently, apparently times have changed. In a survey taken a few years ago in which kids were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, the top selection was, are you ready for this? A YouTuber. Nearly one-third of kids wanted to be a famous social media influencer or a digital platform star beating out astronaut three, two, one. Wow, all right? Now, all of us have probably at one point or another dreamed of being famous, but typically in the past, being famous usually involved being known for something you did really well, right? Like sports or music, acting, science. Fame today seems to revolve more around, well, being famous Hello, Kardashian family, right? Doesn't matter why you're known, as long as you're known and you've got a following and people are willing to do anything to get there. Take, for instance, the case of a young man named Nicholas Perry. Nicholas wanted to generate a following on YouTube. And so when he was 24, he began to post videos of himself playing the violin and promoting a vegan diet. But for some reason, apparently, no one was interested in watching vegan violin videos. I don't know why, right? Dashing Perry's hopes of becoming a YouTube sensation. But refusing to abandon his dream, Perry soon cast aside his vegan convictions and began posting videos of himself eating various not-so-vegan food as he talked directly to the camera, acting as a virtual lunch buddy of sorts, because apparently that's a thing. Viewers even began offering their own food recommendations to him, which then led to food challenges in which they dared him to eat insanely large amounts of food in a very short period of time. Wanting to gain more followers, though, Perry was all too eager to accommodate, and soon his brand became gorging himself live on camera, eating literally everything on the menu from various fast food restaurants all at once and regularly. If it meant growing his audience, Perry was more than willing to grow his waistline as well. 
Perry, or Nicocado Avocado, as he apparently prefers to be called now, has gained well over 200 pounds over the last few years, along with a series of various physical and mental health challenges, all for more likes, ads, and subscribes. And man, did he get them. He's now up to 7.4 million subscribers, and his viewers have had over 1.81 billion views, not to mention the millions of dollars he's received in revenue. So, I mean, worth it, right? I mean, he's rich, he's popular, but how many of you would want his life? I think most of us in here would say no. I mean, sure, he has money and fame, but at what cost? I mean, is that, is that the good life? Now, that may be an extreme case, and I certainly don't bring him up to mock him. I think we would all agree that his situation is sad. He may be bigger in size and in name recognition, but this poor guy is a shell of who he once was, and it's literally killing him. It's tragic, but he became what he treasured. So before you look on him with disdain, what if I were to tell you that that's all our story? Sure, maybe you didn't sacrifice your body on the altar of food porn, but we've all made our name, our glory, the center of our story. Maybe you've got higher standards for yourself, when we've all made our will, our agenda, our ambition into our purpose. So maybe you're not that desperate for approval, but the attention and esteem of others often drive many of our daily decisions often to catastrophic results. Sure, outwardly, everything may look fine. Unlike Nikocado Avocado, our personal brand may look polished and accomplished, but inwardly, listen, our souls are just as grotesque because we become what we treasure. And just as Nikocado Avocado's self-centered pursuit grossly distorted him mentally and physically, our self-centered pursuits have distorted us spiritually. It's literally killing you because what you treasure, what you pursue, what you adore defines who you are and determines what you become. Jesus tells us this in our passage this morning, Matthew 6, 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Jesus has been warning us about throughout the sermon. Remember, Jesus has been dealing with the false righteousness of the Pharisees. They appear to be righteous on the outside, but inside, he says, you are like rotting corpses. And just like with Mr. Avocado, what's inside eventually comes out. That's why Jesus isn't just concerned with outward behavior, as important as that is. He's more concerned with what's in the heart, because what's in the heart eventually shows up in our outward behavior, because what we adore door defines and determines who we are. That's why Jesus said it's not enough that you've never committed a physical act of adultery. If you've even lusted in your heart, you have the heart of an adulterer. Because instead of delighting in God's good design for sex and marriage, you abuse the gift and desire the gift over the giver. And that can't help but warp your soul. And unless something changes, what's inside eventually comes out. And it's not enough that you've never committed murder. If you've hated someone, you've ha- you have the heart of a murderer. Because instead of loving God with all you've 
God and loving your neighbor as yourself, you've set yourself up over against your neighbor and despise the very image of God. And that distorts the image of God in you because God is love. And if left unaddressed, what's inside you eventually comes out because we become what we adore. We live out what we store up in our hearts. And we tend to only think that this applies to the bad stuff that people pursue, but just think of all the things that may otherwise be good that we've made into gods because we seek them over God and they become an object of worship, an object of adoration for us. They become our identity. For instance, many people throw themselves into their careers and into their education. Good things in and of themselves when received as good gifts from God. But when they become the thing that you adore over God, when they are the thing that you orient your life around, well, they can never carry that kind of weight. And so when you get passed over for that promotion or you get that bad grade, it is just devastating. And you begin to see just what pitiful substitutes for God they are. Listen, getting a good education and having the right opportunity can get you a good career. But listen, they can't get you into heaven. Or take body image. I think we would all agree that taking care of our body is a good thing. We're called to be good stewards of our body. And if we're Christians, we, if we're Christians it's a, we also know that it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. These, it's a good gift from God. But listen, the body can also be an idol. Whether because we manically diet and exercise or because we hate on ourselves for not living up to the picture-perfect image of others we see online. Listen, when our body becomes the object of adoration instead of the means by which we show God adoration, it will ultimately fail us. Or take fame. Man, we all want to be seen and affirmed. We were certainly wired for relationship, to know and to be known, both in relation to God and with one another. But as we saw with Mr. Avocado, in a fallen world, this too gets distorted into needing to be the center of attention, to find your worth in what other people think about you. The actor Brendan Fraser recently won an Academy Award. That's right, the guy who was once in Encino Man and George of the Jungle and The Mummy, right? Now listen, he seems like a nice guy, and he's certainly been very humble in the face of all the accolades he's received in a recent performance, and it's hard not to root for him because he's overcome some health and personal challenges to make a comeback, but I was struck by something that he said in his acceptance speech. He said, I started in this business 30 years ago, and things didn't come easily to me, but there was a facility that I didn't appreciate the time, at the time, he said, until it stopped. In other words, right, the fame was nice until it was gone. And then he felt forgotten and cast aside. He went on to say, it's been like I've been on a diving expedition at the bottom of the ocean, he added in an interview with Willie Geist that he just, quote, wanted to do something that exclaims, I am here. Church, do, do, you see, do you see what's going on here? Even now, when he's at the top of his game, it still just seems so sad, doesn't it? To feel significant, he needs to feel acknowledged by his peers and his fans. Listen, that's so fleeting, Sure, he made a comeback, but for how long? I mean, maybe not anytime soon, but he'll be forgotten again. That's a terribly shaky foundation to place your identity on. Now, many of us, many of us will probably never make it to Hollywood, right? But don't we all struggle with this on some level? 
In fact, that's what Jesus warned us against when he told us not to practice righteousness for the praise of man. That's a terrible place to place your identity and to find your worth and to find your approval. But that's where many people seek their treasure. Or another big one is family. Man, family is a good gift from God that should be cherished. And the love and attention of a parent for his or her child is invaluable and necessary for a child's healthy development. But listen, even that can be distorted. Kids can easily become a parent's idols. As someone once said, kids are great, but they make terrible gods. So determined are some parents to worship their children that they orient everything around them and they make unwise and and unhealthy sacrifices to them. In their minds, parents are doing this for the child's good, to prepare them for success, but often parents' own identity and self-worth is tied up in their child's performance. So they end up doing everything they can to maintain their child's guise of perfection. If the child doesn't get the grade that they want, it surely must have been the teacher. If their child misbehaves, they do all they can to excuse it and shield their child from consequences. Why? Because if my child fails, then that means I failed. And even with the good motive of setting children up for success, we expend so much energy in developing them academically and athletically, which is wonderful, except it is often at the cost of developing them spiritually. I know so many parents that are grieved over the fact that their adult children are not walking with the Lord who will tell you now, I wish, I wish I would have emphasized my child's discipleship in gospel community in a local church. I wish I wouldn't have allowed sports and academics to determine our family schedule, but rather that weekly rhythm of the gathering of the saints. Because football and basketball are straight A and straight A's are awesome, but they can only get you so far in life. They're not the purpose of life. Knowing Jesus is. Listen, I'm not knocking athletics or academics. I've got an education background. I obviously value those things. I'm certainly not knocking family. We should all look out for and take care of our family. God tells us so. These are good gifts. But listen, do you see how when anything other than God becomes an ultimate thing, it ruins its goodness? It's not that the love itself is bad. It's that it's a disordered love. Love goes wrong because we love in the wrong order. That's why Jesus is going to tell us later that we should seek first what? His kingdom. His righteousness. He's not saying that everything we pursue is inherently wrong. It's that we're pursuing the gift over the giver. For instance, sex is a good gift from a good God when it is practiced according to God's good design, which is between one man and one woman for life in the covenant of marriage. But when we worship the sexual act over the one who designed the sexual act, we get all kinds of distortions and disorders from premarital sex to adultery to homosexuality to pornography to prostitution to polyamory to incest to rape and abuse. We took a good gift and distorted it because we worshiped the gift instead of the giver. Likewise, the fruit in the garden was a good creation. Adam and Eve could have looked at it. They could have admired its beauty. They could have sat in the tree's shade. They could have climbed to its very top. They could have made a swing and swung from the branches, right? The problem was not with the tree or with the enjoyment of the tree. It was that they used the tree in the one way that God had forbidden, and we've been paying for it ever since. 
Their disordered love resulted in distorted souls that gave birth to further disordered loves that lead to further distorted souls. That's what's wrong with the world today. And that's what's wrong with you and me today. And listen, if this morning you feel the weight of some of those disordered loves in your life, listen, God isn't opening your eyes to them to condemn you. He's opening your eyes to them because because he wants to redeem you. He wants to change you. And this is part of the process. Remember the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over their brokenness, not only because they're sorry for their sin, but also because they know they are powerless to do anything about it. See, if we become what we adore and our hearts adore what is broken, how can we ever escape this cycle of sin? Listen, it's not going to come from us trying really hard to look righteous. No, it needs to go deeper than that. We need a new heart. We need a heart that is aligned with the heart of God, a completely pure heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness to do the will of God, to do what is pleasing to God. And listen, you can't do that for yourself. But God can do it for you. He will do it for you. You just have to ask him. As God promised in Ezekiel 36, 26, he said, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see what's happening here? By giving you a new heart, God is giving you new desires. Sure, you might still struggle with sin and your disordered loves, but the difference now is you want to kill them. Why? Because there's something you now love more. There's something you treasure and you value more. And now you know that those things that you once loved break the heart of God. And so they now break your heart because his heart is now at work in you. And you adore him. And so now you are becoming what you adore. Because what we adore defines and determines who we are. So why would you keep chasing after that disordered love? Sure, there may be a temporary pleasure in the moment, but listen, that way always ends in death. Jesus is inviting you to a greater love, which ends in eternal life, a life of flourishing and shalom in the present. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. So Jesus tells us not to settle for the things of this present age because he's concerned about our heart. But he also wants to get very practical with us. So listen to what he says in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Notice, Jesus isn't being all super spiritual or inspirational at this point. No, his reasoning is very practical. He's like, if your eternal salvation isn't enough to convince you of this, he basically says, bruh, don't be stupid. Think about this. Because only a fool adores what's temporary. And yet, that's exactly what the world tries to sell us as the good life. Just think of all the commercials that you see on any given day telling you you need a bigger house, a fancier car, swankier clothes, more exotic vacations, a better body. This, they say, will bring you happiness. This 
will bring you satisfaction. But Jesus is saying, listen, all that stuff sure looks nice when it's new. And it might feel good after you've worked hard to get something for it. But listen, what happens to all of it, even the very best of it? It breaks down. It decays. It deteriorates. Man, those new wheels look fresh. But the second you drive that car off the lot, what happens? It depreciates in value. You drop some G's on some Louis Vuitton, and then what? Man, that thing is out by next season. A disproportionate amount of your life is invested in trying to keep your body looking youthful. And for what? That thing's still going to be rotting in the dirt one day, acting as fertilizer. So why would you live for that stuff? Now, again, Jesus isn't anti-pleasure here. He's not even anti-wealth. Just a few passages ago, he, he encouraged us to be a giving people. But you can't give what you don't have, right? So it's not money and material possessions that are the problem. No, again, it's the disordered love of them. It's when they're the treasure of your heart. There's obviously nothing wrong with having a house or a car or clothes or vacation, but listen, you can't take any of it with you. Why then would you chase after something so fragile and temporary? Why would you put your hope in something that can be gone in an instant? Why would you find your value and worth in something so cheap and fleeting? It cracks, it chips, it breaks, its colors fade, it falls apart, it goes out of fashion, it breaks down, it becomes moth food. That, that's your treasure, that's what you center your life around. And even if you can keep something in good condition, Jesus says, someone can just take it from you at any point. You know, that's a scary thought today, but this would have been an even greater threat in the ancient world. Because at least today, we have homes made of brick and stone and wood with doors that lock and security alarms and video doorbells. But back then, most houses were just made of mud. So all anyone had to do to break into your house was to bring something sharp to cut through the dirt wall. How foolish would it have been to spend your life on something that could so easily be taken from you? And while material possessions are the primary focus here, Jesus' words apply to all those other good things we talked about earlier that can become God things if we're not careful. Family, education, career, athletics, any of them can be gone in an instant, and then what? You don't get into that school, you lost your job, what do you do now? Or I've known athletes whose whole world was their sport until that injury. And then for at least a season, they lost their whole sense of who they were. Why? Because their whole identity was wrapped up in the treasure of athletic performance. And now it's gone. Taken from them. Or to return to those parents whose entire world centers around raising perfect children. They are also setting themselves up for a loss. Why? Because one day, that child's going to grow up and leave, and then what? Or maybe worse, one day that child's going to grow up and stay. <laughs> in your basement. Forever. And then what? Now, of course, a child's transition into adulthood is bittersweet for any parent. Grief is normal for that season. But listen, the reason it's so absolutely devastating and debilitating for some parents is because their primary treasure was their children, and they don't know how to function without them. They put their whole identity into something, and now it's gone. 
and they don't know who they are anymore. So Jesus says, don't make temporary things your absolute treasure. Don't make them the object of your adoration. Instead, he says, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, he says, the wise adore what lasts forever. See, again, when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves for the sake of this greater righteousness, he's not being a killjoy. Whenever he tells us to give something up, it's not for loss, but for gain. Because he's calling us to abandon the lesser in pursuit of the greater. And all throughout this chapter, he's been telling us not to settle for that which passes away, but instead to seek the reward that lasts, that can never decay or corrode or disintegrate. In 6.1, he speaks of the reward from our Father in heaven. In 6.4, 6.6, 6.4, 6.6, and 6.18, he promises that for the faithful, your Father will reward you. Listen, Jesus isn't stealing your joy. That's what Satan does when he lures you into settling for lesser treasures. Instead, Jesus seeks to maximize your joy. That's why here he speaks of treasures in heaven. Now, many people have wondered what the reward is that Jesus speaks of. What are these treasures that we lay up in heaven? And you know, while Scripture doesn't get into all the details of what this treasure will look like, this much we can know. It will be glorious. I mean, beyond anything that you could think or imagine. So just for a second, imagine the greatest treasure you could experience in this present world. What is the greatest thing that you can possibly imagine? Do you have that in your mind? Listen, Jesus promises it is better than that. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Listen, what God has prepared for those who love him. James 1.12 even says that we will receive a crown of life. So somebody cue some music because we're going to be royal, y'all. So whatever materially is going on, whatever that's going to look like, listen, we see here in the Sermon on the Mount that at the forefront of the reward and the treasure are the blessings we've seen outlined in the Beatitudes, right? That those who believe and pursue King Jesus will receive the kingdom of heaven and they will inherit the earth. We will be comforted. We will be satisfied. We will receive mercy. We will be called sons of God and most gloriously, church, we shall behold him. We who are sinful and frail, we who have been fallen, we who were far from him, will see him face to face. And more, it says, we will be like him. In other words, it will be shalom. Everything will be as it should be because everything will be in right relationship with God and with one another. And we shall at last know true flourishing. We shall experience the new heaven and the new earth, Eden reinstated back and better than ever. In other words, church, anything good in this life, even that which we might be tempted to worship in the here and now, is but a foretaste of the glory that is to come. Because there, everything good will be unsoiled by any sin, and therefore of any death, any disease, any decay, any demise. 
As D.A. Carson explains, Scripture extrapolates the advanced tastes we enjoy here and pictures love undiluted, a way of life utterly sinless, integrity untarnished, work and responsibility without fatigue, deep emotions without tears, worship without restraint or disharmony or sham, and best of all, the presence of God in an unqualified and unrestricted way. Oh, friend, do you see the glory of storing up those treasures in heaven? But why? Why does Jesus bring this up here? Why does he emphasize reward and treasure so much in the sermon? Yes, he wants us to find our identity in him. Yes, he wants us to be wise in our pursuits, and and he wants us to flourish. But also remember the context in which he is speaking. From the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been warning us that persecution and adversity are coming for us all. If you are following Jesus, Jesus promises you will know pain. You will know suffering. Jesus promised if they came for me, they are coming for you. And just think about the level of persecution that Jesus experienced. He was called crazy. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. He was even called Satan. Those closest to him abandoned him, denied him, betrayed him when it counted most. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was beaten, whipped to the bone. His brow was ripped open by thorns. He was nailed to a splintery cross. He suffocated under his own body weight and his side was pierced. Listen, friend, Jesus knew pain. And he promised us that as his followers, we would too. This is yet another reason why the so-called prosperity gospel is straight from the pits of hell. Jesus never promised you health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. So stop naming and claiming your private jets and million-dollar homes. Jesus promised you a cross. Name and claim that. So why all this talk about rewards from the Father and treasures in heaven? It's Jesus' way of reminding us that things are going to get tough. But when they do, he says, don't you dare give up. Jesus warns us of this later in Matthew. In chapter 24, verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, listen, the love of many will grow cold. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that when things start to go south, the temptation is going to be to bail on this whole Jesus thing and join the path of least resistance, to start grasping at whatever treasures we can on earth. And Jesus says, don't you dare do it. Why? Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Church, the temptation to abandon eternal treasure for worldly pleasures is real. But Jesus says, don't get distracted. Don't depart from the good life for a cheap counterfeit. Because if you give up, you get nothing. But the one who perseveres to the end gets everything. 
That's why Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking to Jesus. Man, the image here is that you are in this dead heat sprint, right? Racing to the finish line. If you truly want to win, how dumb would you be to be running with a backpack filled with junk? No matter how valuable that stuff is, that is just going to weigh you down. How ridiculous would it be for you to get entangled in something that's going to hold you back? How crazy would you be to be looking from side to side? It's going to get you off course. You'd be all over the place. How foolish would it be for you to be running while you look behind you at what's already transpired? You are going to be falling flat on your face. Now, what do you do? You keep your eyes on the finish line. You keep your eyes on the prize. You look to Jesus. And listen to what he says, or why he says to look to Jesus. He says, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the example the author of Hebrews wants us to learn from Jesus? He's showing us, yes, Jesus is all-powerful. He's the very Son of God. He could have stopped his suffering any time he wanted to. So why? Why did he put himself through it? Listen, he was willing to suffer now because he knew a greater glory was coming. It says, for the joy that was set before him he endured. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, Jesus endured all the evils of earth because his treasure was in heaven. Because he delighted in doing the Father's will. And because he did, he received the Father's reward. Jesus' treasure was not in the riches of this world, nor was it in the praise of man. No, while he owned everything in the universe, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. The Bible says that while foxes have holes and birds have nests, Jesus had no place to lay his head. And when Satan tempted him with the treasures of worldly goods, Jesus refused to give in. Why? Not because Jesus was some sort of ascetic thinking you're holier if you walk around in sackcloth and ashes and live like a hermit in the wilderness. No, it says he denied himself these things and endured in persecution for what? purpose for the joy for the treasure that was set before him because he knew rejection now meant acceptance then he knew that shame now meant honor then he knew deprivation now meant endless pleasure then he knew defamation now meant vindication then Jesus was seeking eternal treasure and at the very center of all that was the eternal treasure of securing your eternal life. Jesus endured the unjust wrath of man and the fully just wrath of God on your behalf so that you could be made right with God. Listen, so that you could have treasure in heaven. So get your eyes off all that stuff that's going to pass away. Fix your eyes on what is eternal. Sure, you might feel the loss now, but what did Jesus say? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's why Jesus went on to ask, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Only a fool would do that. Meanwhile, Jesus promised in Matthew 19, 29 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Listen, if we want the greater treasure then, we need to count the cost now. 1 Peter 4.13 tells us we should rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Romans 8.17 tells us that we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. For what purpose? That we may also be glorified with him. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Are you willing to lose something now to receive something infinitely greater then? Are you willing to suffer now in order to receive a greater glory then? Because whatever you're clinging to now, no matter how great it seems, is small in comparison to the treasure of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Indeed, Philippians 3, 7 to 8 says this, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ is the treasure of heaven. Why would you settle for something that's going to pass away? Only Jesus lasts forever. So store up your treasure in heaven. Find your treasure in him. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.